Kearns, Executive Vice Chair of MasterCard and Global Chair of the 30% Club. This is your WinTrade Global Talk. And the first thing that I would ask you to do is just tell us a little bit about your journey from where you began to where you are now at the top. Well, it's rather a long journey, and so I'll try not to bore you, but because I've been uh, working since I was 22 and I'm 64 now, so it's 42 years. I think that's the nice thing about the journey is that it's been really interesting and it has involved different industries. And I always think from a career perspective, it's nice to move from one thing to the other. I started off life as a research scientist. I have a pure maths degree. I moved into offshore engineering. British Gas then privatized, and I saw that the people running the company were people with finance backgrounds, not with engineering backgrounds. So I moved to join Citibank, and I stayed with Citibank for 15 years and traveled all over the world and moved to New York. And then I was headhunted by ABN AMRO to go and run their payments business. And I moved to Holland and then Chicago and then back to London. <laughs> and then I left King when Royal Bank of Scotland bought ABN AMRO. Enough said about that part of history. But <laughs> then I joined a private restructuring company called Alvarez and Marsal. And they ended up restructuring Lehman Holdings through the Chapter 11. So I became the CEO of Lehman Brother Holdings across Europe into Middle East and Africa. And I did that for three years. And I was coming out of a hotel in Greece in a tear gas riot when Mr. Card rang me up. <laughs> <laughs> And what better time? What yes, better time? Exactly, exactly. Would I be interested in applying for head of international for MasterCard? That's to run everything outside America, 60% of the company. And that's how I ended up here. So it's been a long journey and a great one. And you've been doing amazing things. I mean, you can hardly touch anything within the gender equality space without hearing about something you've done, something you've been involved with. But before we go on to that, actually, one of the things that I would really love to find out about, tell me more about the 30% Club. And we, I know the background, but many of my audience won't. So it would be great to just talk about the 30% Club, how it was started, why it was started, when it was started, what it's achieved in the time it's been going, because we all know it's quite a lot. And I'm going to be challenging. I like to be challenging in my interviews and say, how long have you been in the chair? What difference have you made since you've been in the chair? And by the time your chair term, I'm not quite sure what the term is, but by the time your term as chair is done, what will you hope to have been achieved? Now, I've given you lots of things to talk about there. Oh, so. my goodness, yes, yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> a little bit of history. The 30% Club started in Britain at a time when we had less than 10% women on boards, and that's over 10 years ago. It was founded by Helena Morrissey and a group of other people, including Mary Gowdy, who I'm still working with, fantastic mm -hmm. colleague, Baroness Gowdy. And at that time, they went out and they talked to top, CEOs and chairs who were predominantly men and said, do we really want this? Don't we want more diversity at the top of your companies? And they found some very enlightened men from British Aerospace, from Deloitte, from Lloyds Bank. 
chairs in particular who said yes we do and we're willing to sign up to this and we'll ring our friends who are also chairs and ceos and get them to sign up to it so today the 30 percent club is in over 20 countries um it's predominantly a club of men because 95 percent of the world's biggest companies are still run by men um, but these men have signed up to say i want at least 30 percent women on my board and I want at least 30% women in my C-suite, you know, direct reports. And things have changed. I mean, things have changed in the sense that 36% of the FTSE 100 boards are now women and 34% across the 350. Last year, as a result of Black Lives Matter, well, not as a result of Black Lives Matter, before Black Lives Matter, we intended to launch into the ethnicity sphere and say we want at least one board member of colour, but because we're the 30% club, we'd like 50% of those seats to go to women. We launched shortly after the, the terrible incident in America, the killing. And I must say that the CEOs and chairs responded incredibly well. Of course, we've had the Reparker review here, but it wasn't moving fast enough. But one or two of them, Yvonne, rang me up and said, hey, Anne, do you think we could have 50% women of colour? You know, can we reach mm. that target? And I said, yeah, you can, because you're tracking at 42%. So the thing is, it wasn't that there isn't a desire for that. It's that they were worried in case they're signing up to something that was unachievable for them. So since I took over, we've obviously made that move. We've built up in Japan and we've moved from 7% to 13% women on board. Now, that sounds a low number to us in the UK. But remember, mm -hmm. you know, Japanese society is very traditional. So to double in the space of two years has been amazing. We actually host conferences all over the world. One of the great things about COVID is that I'm able to join them now as the global chair. I was just speaking to a conference in Malaysia yesterday hosted by the 30% club and the day before in Colombia. We've launched in Colombia, we've opened in Mexico and my aim is to try and go after all G20 countries. There's some tough nuts to crack there because we want to bring in Germany, we want to bring in France. What we have done in France is launched to the Invest Club so that has been great because they are an amazing group who really talk to CEOs and chairs about changing the structure of boards. But of mm -hmm. course, in Germany and France, you have mandates and they're saying, well, you know, we already have mandates and we're OK at the board level. But I'm saying there's so much more to this. You know, you need mentorship programs, you need investor groups, you need to think beyond the board into the C-suite and below about what you're doing to bring people to the pipeline. And you need to diversify beyond gender. So that's what we're talking about. There's a, a lot going on and, and a lot to do. What, one of the things I, I want to ask you personally is how do you juggle everything? How do you manage all? <laughs> very badly, very badly. <laughs> you know, my mother always brought me up to say no, but for some reason I say yes to everything. <laughs> I know, but, I know. Um, but I yeah it's hard it's hard so one of one of the other things that you do that's very much of interest to our audience so we had the minister for Bayes at the time Nadim Zahawi mm -hmm. and he was our very first win trade global talk when we had over a thousand people registering and about 700 people online but it was at the time when people still very nervous, people just were just out of their head, really, not knowing 
what's going on, what to do next, will they survive? It was total panic. And he came on and he was incredible. He's got that kind of arming, authoritative, believable. And what, what I felt was really good was that, you know, not many ministers want to come and talk directly to such an audience. And he took the time to reassure everybody, which was amazing. But I now see that one of the things that you do is also Bayes related. So tell us about that. Tell us how Bayes is helping small businesses, if you can, because it might not be your direct remit, how Bayes is helping minority owned businesses and what Bayes is doing generally to continue to support small businesses through COVID. Well, you had a great person there in in Naima. And the thing is that, you know, we're so proud of him, aren't we, as a country, because he's the vaccine minister. And you're right. I think that he's a guy who takes credible care and time to actually connect with people and to be calm and to lead us through a crisis. So it's wonderful to see him in that position. I actually joined Bayes back in January. Originally, I had been talking to Alex Sharma. And then, of course, he moved to run COP26. And so Kwasi Katenga became the new minister for Bayes. And he's actually, I don't know whether you've noticed on the Twitter feeds and LinkedIn and so on, and in the Financial Times and the Times, but he's all over the place. I mean, he's on the east side, you know, opening wind factories and battery factories and um, and vaccine factories, a lot of activity going on. You're quite right. Bayes is actually going to help the Treasury implement their growth strategy this year, uh, very much focused against SMEs. And this is sort of two-pronged. Uh, one is that um, the government want to encourage SMEs to digitise. And so a bit in the way that they provide the ability to have grants to do things like convert your home to a, you know, a green environment. Mm -hmm. They're looking at encouraging SMEs to buy software and platforms to run their business, but they're not doing that in isolation. They're going to actually have training courses put in place by business schools, actually, from top universities across Britain in different areas. And all that will be happening in Bayes this year or through base if you like so i was very excited to be signed on a lead director last week we were recruiting two more directors and you're going to like it yvonne because i think we might be one of the most balanced both from a gender and diversity point of view department um, in government (laughs) we had 266 applicants for our two wow yeah and we're going to be recruiting another position later in there very much focused on energy so uh, it's only really been three months but i've enjoyed it immensely i have a a female permanent secretary sarah mumby Mm -hmm. fantastic team erin base and we cover everything from you know the energy agenda through to what we're doing with business across the country to what we're doing to actually help innovation and you know keep the business environment safe as well for the future. So it's needed more now than ever, which is why I decided to do that at this point in time. That's absolutely amazing. And it's great news. And maybe 
later in the year, you can come back and give us a bit of an update because the majority of the people online are small businesses, entrepreneurs. But we do have people from all over the world, which is great. We have a great international audience. This kind of leads on to my next question. It's kind of going back to MasterCard. You've done some great work as far as leading MasterCard for equality and diversity is concerned. Can you tell us what is MasterCard doing that is different to what, if you can give us a secret, if you can let us into that secret, how are you achieving such uh, great results as far as equality and diversity is concerned from MasterCard? Because one of the things that's happened is that, especially since around lockdown and COVID, and of course, around Black Lives Matter, anybody within the Black community that's got a, a little bit of profile, meaning me, mm-hmm. um, you know, you get so many different organizations coming along and saying, oh, what should I be doing? What can we be doing differently? How can we make our minority employers feel more at home, feel more included, you know, all the sayings, comfortable and comfortable conversations, having the difficult dialogues, all of those, you know, um, things that people say. What is MasterCard doing differently? Well, I mean, it, it's a great question. Uh, I think about some years ago um, when uh, Martina Hunmajan was working with me. She was the CFO of the company, and I was the person running 60% of the company, everything outside America. We actually got together, the two of us, and we said, what are we going to do about gender strategy around here? And we actually engaged quite a few of the senior men on it and came up with a plan that said, let's think about it in, in three pillars And we thought, what are we doing for our people? What are we doing for our products and markets? And what are we doing Mm -hmm. for society? The thing about this was that this structure gave us a fantastic way of connecting straight through to the strategy of the company instead of diversity and inclusion being in an HR department or something on the side that some diversity guru does, you know, it was bang in the middle of the company strategy. And I think that's helped us tremendously over the years. And actually that same sort of pillar approach is what we do to address something that we call solidarity, which is dealing with helping the black population in America. So if I can sort of give you an example, in the people pillar, Mm -hmm. we decided we were gonna roll out global paternity and maternity leave everywhere around the world, four months paid leave, for mums and dads and single sex couples and people who adopted. It's very broad. And also thought about, and when you come back to work, your bonus is not affected, right? These kind of things have to be thought about. Now, the great thing about that is most of the dads take their leave in our company because the culture of the company says, that's what we want you to do. So you can put in these rules, but the culture is really important. Last year, we started to publish our gender pay gap all over the world, which is uh, just less than 8% for women Mm -hmm. and about 7% for black Americans, because that's also published. The interesting thing about that is this year, we've got one step further and we're linking those kind of measures to executive pay. 
in fact, our whole SDG agenda, including net zero and so on, but it includes that pay gap measure as well. So I think that once you start building in a very definite way at the center of the company, you start linking and you achieve all sorts of things going forward. The last thing I'd say is we do a lot in the product and marketing area and we do a ton for society. The society piece was basically taking things like half a billion uh, dollars and uh, putting them uh, to against sort of what we're doing for black communities and black entrepreneurs and uh, supply chains and so on in America. But around the world, we're also committing to reach the next 25 million women SMEs and connect them to the digital system and financially include them. And these are the kind of things that we do. Oh, that's amazing. So kind of back to the gender question, Oh, with the intersectionality of race, let's be let's be straight. Mm. How do you see this going forward as far as not only women on boards, but minorities on boards in general? You mentioned the Parker Review, which I'm also part of. And I agree with you that for me, even though I'm part of it, it's quite frustrating because I don't feel that getting the traction that the 30% had why is that and how can we how can we make that change how can we get things moving with much more momentum i think the secret sauce of the 30 percent club is to do with basically the ceo's hairs signing to it as an aspirational goal rather than being told by people what to do if they own it it's different mm -hmm. and i think that's why it works i think then companies try and think of things that they can do to attain these targets. If I go back to, with my MasterCard hat on, we rolled out a program in America last year, which actually matched 25 very senior women from all sorts of different backgrounds and ethnicities, by the way, to 25 not-for-profit boards in order to give our senior women the experience of being on a not-for-profit board. But also, we we helped them with the funding, we beat them up, we ran training courses, so it wasn't just get onto a board and we'll leave you alone. We're mm. now doing that for a cohort of black employees across America, though some of the original women were because of intersectionality. And we're launching it in London and we're launching it in Singapore because we can see that it's been a really effective program and it's actually giving the people involved um, incredible um, executive experience, non-executive experience, but it's also giving back to the communities that we're living in. So it's a win-win-win all the way. You, you kind of preempted my question. I kind of put it under um, the heading of holding your feet to the fire. <laughs> uh, so I'm sure you're going to be able to deal with this one. How will race and gender be better represented because of your tenure as chair of both MasterCard and the 30% Club? I mean, the proof's going to be in the pudding, isn't it? Whether we get more people on boards and more people in C-suites. But I think we will because, as I say, aspirational goal setting, because we've got mentorship programs that support from the percent club perspective and from a MasterCard perspective internally, by the way. But the mentorship scheme in the 30% club has now been adapted to be mission include 
And it's not just addressing women, it's addressing race, it's addressing LBGTQ, it's addressing disability, you know, it's much, much broader. And many sure. companies are now adopting and signing up to this. But I also think it's individual chairs and CEOs and nomcos and the board members making the decisions. If I think about the interviews that we just did last week with Bayes, on that interview panel, you had me, uh, my other fellow board member, Nigel Boardman. You had Kwasi Katenga, of course, the minister. I mean, he's the main guy. And uh, you had Sarah Munby, the permanent secretary. And we went through the week before a short list of, a long list, if you like, of 50 people, took it to a short list of seven people, and then went through the interviews and hired the best people for the job but we made sure that the people who sat in front of us came with those backgrounds and so that we could choose, you know, to have mm. a good and varied board structure. And I think that is what you do one seat at a time. I mean, you mentioned that it, the outcome is relied on by the people who are incumbent. But if that doesn't change and if there's no diversity of thought, if there's no what I call culture ad in the room, how is that diversity of thought ever going to be present? How is that ever going to change? Even with the women on boards, there's the saying that there should be at least three women or 33%, I think it is, to just in order to make women feel comfortable enough to speak up without having to go through the imposter syndrome before they actually get to say anything. That's got to be twice, if not three or four times as difficult for minorities on board. When are we going to get that change starting to come to filter through? Well, I completely agree with you. And, and it's almost that, you know, though we got targets of at least one person of colour, that's kind of, you know, thinking, oh, 15 percent of the population and so on. Although I don't think you should probably ever get one and done. I mean, I think that, you know, you've really got to think about um, how you create a critical mass in any kind of environment. What I would say about the incumbent problem is an example from my MasterCard days. When I first arrived on the scene, I looked at all of the country managers in my organization and I could only see a handful of women down there. And of course, the first two years, I traveled around the world and I said to all of my um, region and division heads and hiring managers, I'd like more women country heads. They kind of nodded and they agreed with me and said that would be really good. And then nothing happened for two years, to which Yvonne added, blimey, I'm obviously a really impactful executive here. <laughs> so I thought, what should I do next? And what I did was I got together with my HR head and said, before the appointments made, let's look at every country head appointment and say to the hiring managers, I'm not going to tell you who to hire, but I would like to see a balanced slate. And then I would like you to come and explain to me before you appoint somebody, why you chose that person from the shortlist as the best person for the job. What does that do? That stops people saying, I'll just appoint John because he's a good mate. He looks like me. They have to come with a very definite criteria about why they made that choice. And in the first year, it, it immediately changed things by 10% in one year. 
And now there's over 30% women in those roles. And they're not the easy countries. There was a woman ahead in Venezuela, Colombia, um, you know, Nigeria, Ukraine, um, you know, uh, but also France, uh, Spain, uh, Scandinavia, uh, Canada, America. So the thing is, I think that once things start to change, it can accelerate really quickly. And I think inside a company, it's the senior manager looking down and really saying, I'm, I'm watching, I'm looking at what you're doing. And justify to me the decisions you make around people. That is something so powerful. I think in a country, things like publishing the agenda pay gap, not just publishing it, but debating it. You know, how can we improve this? Is it improving year over year? And if it's not, why not? I, I think that's really important. And similarly on ethnicity pay gaps, some people publish their ethnicity pay gaps. In Britain, we don't collect the data in the way that you do in the States. And or you can publish it in the States with some level of what I want to say. It's easier. But I think that we can definitely go that way here as well. I think all of these things are the things that change the incumbency. My very last question is one that I I get asked, and then when I give my answer, people don't quite know how to take it. And that question is, do you think there should be quotas for women on boards and also minorities on boards? I know it's a very... No, no, I mean, listen, I, you know, I I wasn't hugely pro-quotas, but um, in these days, I'm anti them. And my view of it is, in some countries, quotas work really well. Um, And it depends. If you're quite a rule-driven culture, then quotas actually can be a great solution to changing things. I think in Britain, we're less of a rule-driven culture. We like to think we do things, you know, aspirationally and that we can do this professionally ourselves. I actually think if it ends up that we can't, then we should think about it. I would never rule out trying to do something in the right way first and one of the things i'd say is if you do it on aspirational targets you might get it through culture change if you do it by rules you might change things and then the culture changes over time so it's almost the reverse way round but yeah. i'm definitely not saying that uh, quotas don't work they do work and i've heard many people i was talking to a german woman the other day she's very senior and she's on several boards and she said somebody said to her you are a quota woman and there's you know it sounds quite stern in german and she said fair enough i'm happy to take it she said because i'm good enough to be on a board so why would i care absolutely <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> Absolutely. So when when I wrote my book about women on boards, I can't believe it's already six years ago. I actually said in there that I do believe in quotas and we should have quotas with timed obsolescence and then let the market force rule. And years later, I think people are beginning because nothing has changed re- or not enough. I'm sorry, it has changed, but not enough. Yeah. And not fast enough, six years later, I think people are beginning to kind of think slightly differently about that particular question or that particular hurdle. We could go on talking for much longer, but we have people who are waiting to come on. Now, um, the the panel I want to invite first is actually 
our speaker from two weeks ago, Nikita Fadnabis. <laughs> Welcome, Nikita. Please ask a question. Hi, Anne. Thank you for coming today. And it was lovely listening to you. And thank you, Dr. Yvonne. Your questions were very insightful. I have learned this from my personal experience. So that's why this question is here, um, which is how do you deal with men who are in authority? So, you know, a CEO or a president or a director of a company who treats women kind of in a misogynistic way and not entirely their fault, probably because of the culture, the patriarchal culture they were raised in. Um, and for me, another big trouble comes in is the age. So if most people around me are a lot older than me, it just whatever I say, people pretend like they haven't heard me at all. They just tell a senior male member and go, so what do you think? And I'm right here. Dude, I just answered that question. What's going on? I'm not invisible. How do you deal with that? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> Nikita, first of all, when I was about your age, I had long hair like you, and I was an engineer, and I was so desperate to look older so that people would actually listen to what I had to say <laughs> so I can empathize with you. Nowadays, of course, I'm desperate to look younger, but then you're never happy, whatever end spectrum you are. I think the thing with this is that one of the things that you've got to do is get allies around you. And certainly what I did, if I wanted to get my point of view across, I would probably be talking to people outside a meeting that I was going to, to say, what do you think of this? And I would find out people that would support me. And then I would actually, you know, just mention it in the meeting. So John, you know, I think that blah, blah, what do you think? And he would say, oh yeah, well, I agree with Anne about this actually. Um, so there's, there's techniques that you can use like this. If people are interrupting you in a meeting, a good technique to use is just to put your hand up like a stop sign yeah. and say, could I just finish? Because sometimes people are not listening to what you're saying, but actually hand signals, body language can be very effective. I found that that works really well. And yes, I know what you mean about, you know, dealing with older people that are, you know, are brought up in a certain culture. In fact, I was recalling that one of the boards that I went for in my 50s, actually, so I was interviewed by a chap who was head of an audit committee who actually leaned across the table and said to me after sort of 25 years in banking, can you read a P&L? <laughs> <laughs> to which I was like shocked <laughs> and um, and I suddenly felt about your age again and I uh, you know get on, on with this person very well by the way a very nice person but I think that you do come across that and I think that the way that you get over that is to build if you can and it might be very difficult with the CEO of your own company, but if you can, build a personal relationship and then kind of go into a little bit of a reverse mentoring mode where you say, mm -hmm. you know that you made me feel like X when you said that, or, you know, I think it's such a good thing to do. I was talking to the CEO of Sage in the UK, not the science committee, but the company. Mm -hmm. And he was saying he has a 19 year old female mentor. She's one of Sage's apprentices. And she talks to him about how to think about people in terms of gender, race, and so on. And she says things to him like, stop putting me in a box. <laughs> you know, he loves it. He loves it because you know she's being honest with him, and she's yeah. being really helpful. That's what he told me, and uh, I'm sure he doesn't mind me mentioning that because he seemed to be very proud of it. So I think all of these things are needed.
I mean, Greta Thunberg is telling us how to run the world. And for one, I'm listening to her. I think that woman, she's 18 years old, can really put her case and her data forward about climate in action in a way that I haven't seen other people do in the business world or beyond. Amazing, absolutely amazing. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Nikita. We're going to move to our next speaker, who is Lauren. Lauren, go ahead. Thank you, Dr. Vaughan, and great talk. Love listening to you, Anne. I was always wanting to know more about the foundations of the 30% Club, because I want to see 51%, but we have to start somewhere. We, we do too. <laughs> yeah. So thank you for your work. And I left my senior executive role in financial services in my early 40s, believe that early onset dementia. Imagine my surprise when I discovered that I had just been through an early menopause. So mm -hmm. I now work to educate financial services firms and legal firms, well, broader than that, but primarily globally, on why being menopause supportive mm -hmm. is business savvy, so that we can attract and retain our female talent. So my question to you today was really, in all the incredible work you've done, has ever there been any nod to or practical support given to make sure that women throughout their entire hormonal journey, but specifically when they're coming into more senior roles, that tends to be when menopause can be kind of creeping along in the background and can knock a lot of women for six. And we do lose a lot of women age 45 to 55 from the workplace because suddenly something comes along that they don't come in, aren't educated on and don't know how to go and that's what the right help and support. Mm -hmm. I just wondered if that had been on your horizon at all. It's very interesting that you should say this because, you know, I'm kind of thinking that this is something that we would certainly address, you know, through our women network. Although I'll be honest with you and tell you that, I, you know, I haven't been to any sessions on it. I do know from personal experience, obviously I've been through myself quite a few years ago, that when you start getting a cohort of very senior women inside a company and you're working together, then you talk about it, which is actually a very good thing. And mm -hmm. I personally have helped two senior women in my company navigate through it. I, I had a very easy time and didn't even notice almost, but they had really a dreadful experience of it. And I think it was like incredibly helpful for them having a colleague who could see it and see when they were having like an awful day and talk to them about, and one in particular, like was very anti-medication, I'm not taking this and that, you know, real health guru kind of thing. And I said, you must, you know, you've got to go on to HRT. This is not a normal experience that you're having. And, you know, your job's too big to be struggling with this and so forth. I would welcome more openness about it because I think it's absolutely necessary, as you say, as another part of life. I mean, the other thing, I mean, in my particular case, I felt a little bit tired during it, going through it. But as soon as I was through it, I felt like this massive release of yeah. energy. And, you know, I had quite a few years after that where I kind of felt like on top of the world energy wise. And that happens to some people. It happened to my mother um, when she told me that that could happen. And I thought this is great. So there are some pluses and as well as minuses. And I, I completely agree. It'd be the worst thing to sort of slow down in your career and write it off too early and, you know, think you, you plateaued when you really haven't. Yeah. 
Yeah, so thank you so much for that. Just as a, an interesting statistic, over a thousand people that I saw in financial services last year, 81.7% of women neither knew what menopause really was, nor how it was going to impact them, and they didn't want to be seen as vulnerable or weak by asking for help and support. So I just thought I'd share that with That's you. That's amazingly sad to hear that. <laughs> Definitely has to change. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. Rupal, are you there? Hello. Oh, got oh, you. Yes, thank you so much for inviting me to today's discussion. And it's like, it's such an insightful topic. And it's actually so encouraging, Anne, that you've been through a really long career. You survived that career and you've done extremely well in that whole space. So my question really is, one, how did you get all those role transitions? How did they become available to you? And two, in today's environment, how do we stand out so that we are seen as the next um, NED advisor or C-level suite, either in the same industry, because I moved out of banking and I went into fintech, or in a parallel industry like you did, you went into MasterCard out of banking. You know, How do you make those transitions and become visible to the wider industry as a whole to start moving up your career, really? A lot of the time I asked for things, you know, I didn't wait for a job advert, in other words. Now, there were some times that I did job adverts, but when I wanted, when I was a research scientist and I wanted to go offshore and work on the oil and gas rigs, I literally picked up the phone and spoke to the guy who ran offshore engineering in London for British Gas and said, I'm an engineer up in Newcastle, I'd love to work offshore. And he went, oh, Okay, you better get on the train and come down here and talk to me about it. <laughs> and my point about this is, what have you got to lose? <laughs> you know, he could have put the phone down, some crazy woman, leave her up there. But, but he didn't. And I've always felt very, very comfortable and confident about asking for things. So that's number one. When I did the transition to City, though, I responded to an advert in the Sunday Times. I could see that British Gas were putting finance people at the top. I was thinking... Oh, I was 31 and I was thinking, oh, maybe I should do an MBA. And then Citibank advertised and they said they wanted people from industry to come banking as mid-career hires. Mid-career, it was really early career. But, you know, I just applied to that and I got through the interview process. So sometimes you just kind of take a leap of faith. But if that hadn't worked, I'm sure I would have applied to other financial institutions. So some way or another, if you've decided to make that move, you're going to make it happen. And then there were other times that, you know, something happens where, you know, people ring you up. As I said, you know, I'm in a tear gas riot in Greece and somebody rings me up and says, MasterCard want to speak to you. And I'm going, who? <laughs> <laughs> now, in that particular move, actually, what happened was my daughter, who had moved around the world with me and had been at five schools before she was 12 years old, she was 17 then and she was doing her pre-university baccalaureate. And she said, Mom, you're not moving me to New York when I'm in the middle of, you know, upper sixth, basically. And I said, no, actually, I'm not. So when MasterCard offered me the job, I said, I love it. I want to take it but I can't leave London right now. So I'll set a contract that says, I'll come to New York in a year. Let me run it from London. Well, the truth is I never left London because London was the right place to do the job. But it's sort of having the negotiating skill and the confidence to say, I want the job, but here's the terms and conditions that I wanted under and being reasonable about it as well. 
So yeah, that's that's great advice because sometimes you hold back on saying what you actually want from that job, even though you know you're really good at it. Yeah, um, great advice to just pick up the phone as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then there are things that you know other people recommend you for. Um, so you've got to put yourself about a bit and get known by people in the industry, by headhunters if you want to get on boards. Headhunters are the place. And also, you need to tell the headhunters what you want. When I decided that I wanted to go on a FTSE 100 board, the headhunters were saying, oh, you can't do that. You've got to go on a FTSE 250 before. And I said, why? Because, you know, I'm a C-suite in one of the biggest, it would be at the top of the FTSE, my company. And they said, oh, well, that's just the way it works. And I just ignored that. I said, okay, well, ring me if you've got a FTSE 100 board. <laughs> and then for about a year, they rang me about FTSE 250s until somebody rang me about AstraZeneca. And I said, okay, I'll consider that one. And then, yeah, the rest's history. I've had my AstraZeneca jab, by the way. I do, I, do, I do hate these vaccine wars because I do think that there's so many millions of people in Britain who've had this vaccine for various different authorities to be make people scared of it is a very bad thing wonderful thank you very much we've got three more questions so next up we have monique let's have that question very quickly okay great so thank you so much for this this has just been fascinating and fabulous and and it's my pleasure to meet you i want to ask you a two-pronged question with regard to the women who are in the 30% club and the women who are in the seats, the people at MasterCard that you are working with, the women who are the leaders of the company, what are you advising, doing, seeing with regard to mentoring peer-to-peer? -peer? Any of that going on? And also, as Yvonne will tell you, I have begun an article series on legacy and I am wanting women leaders to think of their lives in terms of legacy, not only with regard to what they're leaving when they are deceased, but also every day that they're living. And so I would like to know if you have this concept and if you're talking about legacy in your work. Two great questions. The peer-to-peer -peer thing it is really interesting. I know, well, a couple of years ago inside MasterCard, I decided that I would set up a group, uh, an email group, quite honestly, that was all of the women executive vice presidents and above in the company, of which there's about 50. And these are the top, top women across the company around the world. And that was including me and my colleague, um, Martina at the time, who was the CFO. And it was a very simple thing to set up that email group, but what a difference it made. I mean, it actually caused quite a lot of chat between people from Japan to Bogota, basically, <laughs> talking about things that we were see seeing and hearing in the company, advice. Uh, we've had a couple of babies born in the group. You know, the head of Canada had a baby, um, the head of Western Europe, and also people in the group moving to other functions and so on. And since lockdown, we've had things like Zoom mornings. And there's no sort of huge business agenda, but actually it turns out that it's a lot about the business because these women all have incredibly powerful jobs in the organization and can move things. So I was really happy that I'd done that. And it's a very active group today. The second thing is this legacy concept, Monique, 
absolutely right. I mean, funnily enough, I started something about five years ago called Live a Legacy, and I gathered together women from all walks of life, scientists, politicians, you know, corporate bodies like me, and started to hold events around the world um, around some of MasterCard's big assets. The first one was in Cannes at the Cannes Film Festival. We went to Dubai, we went to Australia, went to the Venice Film Festival, we went to Japan and actually started talking about not just leaving what are you leaving oh we're in Colombia as well what are you leaving it was about how are you living your life to actually help the women that are coming behind you have an easier time of it stand your shoulders move faster as Yvonne was saying and we've got some fabulous alumni in that group some people that you know are heads of pharmaceutical companies and goodness knows what so I think this is a very important topic and the more that we talk about that the better fantastic thanks Monique right next up is Dr Glenna Crooks one of our greatest collaborators. So over to you, Dr. Glenna. Thank you so much. This was really enlightening and very educational for me. I have a question for you about another intersectional issue, and that's the intersection between being a woman and being an older woman. We're all living, especially women, living an additional 30 or 40 years of healthy lifespan. And perhaps men feel a certain bias against their age as well. I don't know about that. But so many of the women I know are expressing that as well. It seems a real shame not to use the experience that we have. I mean, I myself was a senior appointee of President Reagan and was a global vice president of Merck's vaccine business. And it seems like that experience is so rich and could contribute so much challenges we have today. So in your discussions, particularly about board service, does this issue arise? Yes, it does. And what I would say was, it's quite interesting, because what I think we're seeing more and more, and particularly in America, by the way, is female role models that are taking on very serious roles later in life, like Janet Yellen, for example. I mean, we saw Ruth Ginsburg work right through till the end. And because I'm from an American company myself, I got a call a couple of years ago saying, by the way, there's no retirement age, to which I went, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, you know, I take your point. And actually, I was just discussing this with a professor from Amsterdam and a professor from Turkey, two women in their mid 60s. And the Turkish professor just before this call was saying that she got a note saying, oh, you're near retirement age. And I, I think that this needs to be reassessed because I do think that some people can go on an incredibly long time and be in high energy and be impactful. We shouldn't make choices for people around this. And I think that the more role models that we see that are out there, the better, because that's the thing that changes people's perception isn't it? And it should be sort of role models that are off, you know, getting their plastic surgery to unless <laughs> you're a film star, in which case maybe you have to, I don't know. But, you know, in fact, we've got some wonderful film stars. If you compare the British film stars like Judy Dench, who's 86 now, I actually always take heart by the fact that she started her James Bond movies when she was in her 60s and she did it for 18 years. So I mm. love to think about things like that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Glenna. So our very last 
question is from Abinda. Abinda is our legal advisor. So ask away. Thank you. And I'm so grateful for your talk today. It's been really encouraging to have an insight into your journey. In particular, you, you traveled and I would assume as a consequence, you not just had the opportunity to live in fantastic locations, but had the opportunity to also learn from different cultural aspects. I'll be interested to know about how has that helped you in your journey as a board member and also, you know, what skills, key skills should we be developing to attract board level opportunities? You're quite right, Avinda, that um, traveling actually helps you develop tremendously. I, I think actually living outside your own country, as you probably are, makes you realize how bizarre your own culture is, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, you know, I remember when I first got to America, I looked back at Britain, thought it's Monty Python-esque, some of the things <laughs> that we get up to. Although, obviously, I love our culture and I was very happy to come home after 11 years. But I think that it does make you see yourself differently and it, and it opens your eyes as well to how people are living in different parts of the world and therefore what you see as universal truths if you like and things that are just part of your own culture. I think it makes you a citizen of the world and you stop thinking about your own little island and you start thinking about well in particularly things like COVID Everybody's got to have the vaccine, by the way. And, uh, you know, we're all in this together. It's important for us to be cooperative, not shouting at each other about things. Mm. So I think it does make you more round. Also, most of the big boards that you're going to be on these days, what they really want from you is global experience. You know, they want to know that you've been part of a team that really reached out around the world, understands different cultures, knows how business mm -hmm. works in different jurisdictions. And that's really important. By the way, I've got a lawyer on my board, Ice Clear Europe board. She's one of the best people on the board as far as I'm concerned. If I'm interested in a chair about a legal issue, I quite often just pick the phone up to her and just have a one-to-one -one about, what do you think about this? Have you seen this before? Should I be worried about it? What are the ramifications of it? Without actually having to pay the legal advice, having more of a kind of one-on-one -on -one conversation. She's going to be the high sheriff of London, by the way, from April. So that's going to be interesting. <laughs> so the skills that you need to be on a board, you probably already have because you're in the legal profession. You're obviously an international person. I'm sure that you've got quite a good perspective of international business. And then it's really much up to your networking and your personality as much as anything, because the skills are already there. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been your Wintrade Global Talk. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we've enjoyed having you. Thank you I so have. much. I have, Yvonne. Thank you. Marvellous. And, uh, and I've loved the questions. Thank you so much from you and from the audience. It's been lovely. Hey.